0: Support comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Doctors Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about surgical reconstruction options for breast cancer patients with Dr. Tomer Avram. Dr. Avram is an assistant professor of surgery at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center.
1: Tomer, let's talk about breast reconstruction, because years ago, decades ago, I guess, and back in the 1960s, when women were diagnosed with breast cancer, they really had no options. Their option was have a mastectomy or nothing. And really, it's been the work of a lot of advocates who have said, no, quality of life is important, body image is important, a sense of femininity and sexuality, and so many other things that come with having a breast mound are important to breast cancer survivors. And so we started to see uh, an increase in breast reconstruction. So talk to us a little bit about the options that women now have in terms of breast reconstruction.
2: Yeah so I, I think you're 100% correct and this is uh, required a little bit of a cultural change from the view that uh, breast reconstruction was cosmetic and not something that's 100% necessary to the idea that it's reconstructive and in order to make somebody whole uh, that's in that's worth investing resources in and things really changed um, in the 80s as technologies improved, and then again uh, in the 90s. In 1998, a law was passed uh, that, without getting into the legalese of it, basically states that uh, insurance companies are mandated uh, to cover Uh, breast reconstructive procedures for women that have had mastectomy.
1: And that's something that a lot of women don't know, right? Right. Because a lot of women think, oh my gosh, I mean, you're talking to me about all of these reconstructive options, but what is that going to do at the end of the day uh, in terms of my out-of-pocket costs? Correct. So that's a really important point.
2: And- and that, that was important. And then the thing that preceded that that made all this possible was study upon study showing that breast reconstruction is safe. So you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. The women that have had mastectomies have cancer for the most part, and they need to be treated as such, and they need to be cured of their cancer, and nothing can get in the way of that. So it was important for us to demonstrate that breast reconstruction could be done safely and in coordination with the breast oncologists in a way that was safe for women. Um, and I think that's been well-established, and uh, I see women all the time that come in and see me and feel guilty about even considering a breast reconstruction where they feel like they should be happy to just, you know, have treatment for their cancer and be able to live uh, full long lives. And the reality is that the two things Uh, can be done at the same time. They're both achievable. So uh, in terms of breast reconstruction, there's been a lot of advances, um, and when I talk to patients uh, for uh, breast uh, reconstructive consult, I have a sort of, a, for lack of a better term, a spiel that I go through, uh, and then I I go through it in broad categories, and then we drill down on the things that are important to them. So the first option when it comes to breast reconstruction is to have no reconstruction. Reconstruction is not 100% necessary. You don't need a breast to live, but if it's important to you? That's a legitimate thing, and it's important to us, and it's what we do all day, every day. So if patients come to see me, generally speaking, they are interested in breast reconstruction. And then breast reconstruction can broadly be broken down into two categories. One involves using implants, and one involves using uh, your own tissues. And even within those, you can break it down further, and everything has advantages and disadvantages, and and that's sort of how I conceptualize it.
1: So let's talk about those broad categories, because I think that there are a lot of issues that people need to consider, a lot of misconceptions out there, and a lot of new techniques that have really come to fruition in the last several years, several decades, but that are really starting to come into practice now. So when we think about implant-based reconstruction. You know, some people uh, think that they can get an implant right away, and that potentially is an option. But many other patients will often have a tissue expander placed first. Talk to us a little bit more about that whole decision-making process, how you figure out what's right for a given individual, whether they go direct to implant, whether they do a tissue expander, whether it's above the muscle, below the muscle, what kind of implant, uh, and so on. because I mean, people think that implants, is, it's just like, okay, I'm going to get implants, but it's a lot more complex
2: than that. Right. And what I tell patients is that from, for the majority of patients, getting an implant actually involves two surgeries. At the first surgery, which is done at the time of mastectomy, for most patients, a tissue expander, which is a temporary implant, will be placed in. And what happens is once the mastectomy heals, they come into the office, and that tissue expander is filled sort of like a water balloon. It's filled with usually with salt water, with saline. And what that does is that stretches the res- remaining skin of the breast until there's enough skin to come back and put in a more permanent implant. Now, over the last few years, uh, a technique called direct-to-implant reconstruction has gained popularity, and for select patients, it's a very good idea. Specifically, I think it's best for patients that have nipple-sparing mastectomies, and for patients uh, that uh, have uh, uh, somebody that does a mastectomy that has very uh, that has very specific properties. What I mean by that is. Um, Sometimes a mastectomy can have be on the thicker side. However, some women are very thin and the mastectomy can be on the thinner side and the blood supply to it may not be as good. And if you put a big implant underneath it, you're now putting pressure on it and increasing the probability of a wound healing problem.
1: And so, you know, the other thing with the whole implants is that they're now textured implants and not textured implants. And there was a big flash in the news recently about implants causing cancer. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, that's obviously big news. And it's something that we keep a very close eye on and very concerned. So like I said before, as reconstructive surgeons, the last thing we can do is impact the cancer outcome for a patient and doing anything that could potentially increase their risk of cancer is something that we worry about. So uh, the data is slowly coming in. Uh, There is uh, a potential risk of a certain type of lymphoma that's been reported with some breast implants. Now, this is very rare. And it's only been reported to date, as far as I'm aware, with textured implants. And those are, for the most part, the shaped implants. Sometimes people refer to them as the gummy bear implants. And those implants gave a very good cosmetic result. However, the risk of developing this lymphoma with them is now believed to be as high as 1 in 30,000. So while that's still low... It's, it's not zero, and it's certainly making me reconsider the idea of putting in uh, that type of implant. And in my practice, I've moved more into the smooth, round implants with the understanding that it may be harder to achieve an ideal uh, cosmetic result, but I just feel like it's safer.
1: And so there's lots of things to consider in terms of the whole tissue expander implant category. What about this using your own tissue?
2: So, you know, the. I have to admit I have a bias towards uh, operations of use your own tissues, and that's a bias based on training. It's something that I specifically train to do. Uh, it's uh, an interesting operation to me and in many ways, I think, can provide for, uh, for a select group of patients, superior outcomes. What I mean by that is that it's often a more natural looking and feeling reconstruction. Nothing uh, that's man-made can feel like human tissue, uh, but when you use skin and fat from somewhere else in the body, that will look and feel like a breast. The other advantage is that some women are discomforted by the idea of having a foreign body in them, so having an implant is something that bothers them from a psychological point of view. And then the last thing is that implants are not lifetime devices. So uh, the studies show that uh, implants Uh, from this generation of implants are likely to have a problem that requires them to be replaced every 15 years or so on average, whereas your own tissue is your own tissue, and that's your tissue for life. And especially as we're seeing uh, with with better screening techniques and with discovery of certain genetic markers, we're seeing women that are younger and younger being treated for breast cancer. So if you're treating a 50-year-old woman for breast cancer and she's going to be cured of her disease, it's very likely that during the course of her lifetime she'll have a problem with her implant that requires it to be replaced. So that's just something that a woman choosing an implant needs to know in advance.
1: And so. Is there also a, an issue with infection? I mean, a lot of people think that the foreign body of an implant is associated with a higher infection rate than using your own tissue. Is that true? It,
2: it's It may not be associated with a higher infection rate, but when you have an infection, it's a bigger problem. So if you have an infection and you've used your own tissues, that's generally not a big deal. The vast majority of those can be treated with outpatient antibiotics and they resolve on their own. If you have an impl- infection of an implant, that's a foreign body. You have to understand the way antibiotics work is that they get into your bloodstream, and then they go to the site of infection, they treat the infection. A foreign body, an implant, a piece of silicone, doesn't have blood supply. So antibiotics can't effectively get there and treat that infection. And a seriously infected implant, generally speaking, has to be removed. And that could be devastating because uh, our goal is for women to never see themselves not at least partially reconstructed uh, and not to feel deformed. And a woman that's gone through surgery to do that and then has to have her implant removed uh, Can be devastated.
1: And how often do implants deflate? I mean, one of the questions and one of the fears that I think patients have is, you've kind of put this water balloon or silicone balloon in me. Uh, What are the chances that it ruptures? I mean, certainly the earlier generation of implants, that was that was a real concern for a lot of people.
2: And it's still a real concern. It depends on your time horizon. You know, over a long enough time horizon, any mechanical device will eventually fail. Uh, So I think. The best way to conceptually conceptually think about it is an every average of 15 years. So a woman that's 50 uh, can expect by the time that she's 65 or in her late 60s to have a problem such as a leak that requires an implant to be removed. And that's that's a real issue because people are living longer and longer, and they're living a uh, higher quality of life for longer periods of time. And a 65-year-old woman uh, today is very likely to be vital and still care about the appearance of her breasts. And uh, to then 15 years after she had a mastectomy to require more surgery um, may be difficult.
1: Yeah. So in terms of autologous reconstruction, using your own tissue— Where do we get tissue from? What are the operations like? What are the pluses and minuses of different operations? How do you help patients to kind of figure that all out?
2: So, again, there's many options. Uh, Traditionally, historically, people have taken tissue from the back, uh, and then there was a transition to taking tissue from the belly. Uh, And now with newer techniques, we're able to take tissues from the buttock or the thigh, either the the posterior thigh or uh, the uh, the inside of the thigh. But again, the vast majority of patients are going to get tissue from the lower abdomen. And the reason for that is that you have to look at the patients that get breast cancer. Uh, your typical breast cancer patient is a woman in her 50s or 60s. Many of them have had children. And that means that almost all of them have some extra tissue that they can give us in their lower abdomen. And so if you think of it as removing the same tissue as you would with a tummy tuck, except now we dissect the um, blood vessels through the muscle and we bring the uh, tissue with its blood supply and transfer it to the chest and use that. So I would say that uh, greater than 90% of women that have this type of operation uh, use the tissue from their belly. Now again, there's been changes over the years In the 80s when this was gaining popularity this would require transferring uh the fat and skin from the lower belly along with the entire rectus muscle the rectus muscle is a muscle that sits at the front of our belly and gives us uh those of us that are lucky enough to have it the six pack um and uh over time that changed and newer techniques allowed to leave some of the muscle behind and take some of the muscle. And now the operation that we most commonly do is called a DIEP flap, a deep flap. And when we do that, uh, we leave virtually the entire muscle in place and just dissect the blood vessels through it.
1: So a lot of really cool advances in autologous reconstruction. We're going to learn a lot more about all of these different options, which one is right for a given patient, right after we take a short break. Please stay tuned to learn more information about breast reconstruction for women with breast cancer.
0: Support comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service clinical practice guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This
1: is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Tomer Avram. We're talking about surgical advances for breast cancer, and more specifically, for breast cancer reconstruction. Now, before the break, we started talking a lot about implants and tissue expanders and that whole aspect of reconstruction. And now we're learning a little bit more about autologous reconstruction or using your own tissue. So, Tomer, you were talking about how techniques, particularly for using tissue from the lower abdomen, have improved over time. And this new technique, this D-I-E-P flap where you take the tissue with the fat but leave the muscle behind is something that you're doing pretty routinely in your practice now.
2: Yeah, we do it routinely. It's I would say that it's something that's gained popularity over the past decade. Uh, Dr. Bob Allen is a surgeon that described this first in uh, the 2000s and uh, late 90s. Um, but uh, it took a while to catch on because it's a technically a complex operation. Um, and But it's now our go-to. And I would say that 95% of our patients that get autologous reconstruction get this.
1: So what are the advantages of that versus the older operations that took the muscle?
2: It's a very good question. So the older operations obviously took the muscle, and more importantly, they took the fascia. The fascia is uh, the layer of the body that's connective tissue that helps us separate the inside from the outside and when that was removed you'd have the potential for all sorts of complications such as a bulge in the abdomen or a hernia Uh, and also for physically active women and many women are uh, even into their 50s and 60s now very physically active they made sense uh, a difference if their piece if a, a significant piece of their abdominal muscle is removed.
1: And so, with this technique, though, because it's so complex and because you need to sew these blood vessels with microscopes in the operating room, it's a longer procedure, isn't it?
2: It's a longer procedure, but we're getting you know better and better and faster and faster. And I would say that for uh, a two-sided procedure, so a bilateral procedure uh, in the past, you- Uh, People talked about 12-hour operations, uh, sometimes longer, and I think we're routinely now doing them at under eight and under seven hours, so that's no longer the case. Uh, And I tell the patients that uh, the goal is to make things as simple as possible. Uh, We're able to simplify things to the point where now patients are going home two to three days after their operation Mm -hmm. as opposed to going home a week after their operation, and we really try to minimize uh, the disruption to their lives.
1: What are the ups, we talked a little bit about the upside, which is really getting a twofer, a tummy tuck and a breast reconstruction at the same time. What are the downsides of the operation? What are the complications, the things that people should have their eyes wide open before they sign that piece of
2: paper? So absolutely. And uh, it's a big operation and there are potential downsides. And I always tell patients that before I undertake this with them, they need to be committed to it because I take responsibility for any problems that they have, but they're the only ones that experience it. So they need to know what they're getting themselves into. So The downside is you're making an incision somewhere that doesn't have a problem. The breast has a problem, and now you're making an incision in the belly. You do have the benefit of losing that extra tissue, but if it's not something that bothered you, then now you're making an incision somewhere that didn't bother you, and you have that. The other uh, major downside, I think, is uh, increased downtime versus other techniques. So I think that for most women, they can expect to miss two to three weeks of work after this operation and recuperating, and it's a very similar kind of recuperation to a tummy tuck. So the belly may be tight, they may walk hunched over for a couple of weeks, we may ask that they lie in bed with pillows under their knees and under their head so they stay in a sort of flexed position. And in terms of complications, the complication rates between implants and uh, using your own tissues are similar, Uh, but the complication when you use your own tissues can be more devastating in the sense that if you have a reconstruction using your own tissues and that fails, you've had a big operation. And seeing it fail and needing more surgery can be really troublesome to some patients. Fortunately, that's rare. Depending on the study that you look at, the risk for that is between half of 1% and 2%. So... I sort of split the baby and I tell patients that it's a risk of approximately 1.5%. So I say 1 in 60 patients or 1 in seven at 75 patients has a risk of that happening to them. And we've been fortunate that that hasn't been the case in my practice to date, but I'm going to knock on wood and not, not mess with the gods. Uh, but, you know, it can happen. Uh, fortunately, we don't see it that often.
1: Terrific. Now, at the top of the show, we were talking a lot about that the fact that there is more than just one autologous option. So, whereas ninety-five percent of using your own tissue comes from the belly then that's where most of us have plenty to spare um, you now have other options uh, for taking fat from other parts of the body how do you make the decision of which flap is best for each woman
2: so it a lot of it depends on body shape and body image and where women are tolerant of having scars or not so there are some women that are just not candidates for using tissue from their belly maybe they've had a tummy tuck and that tissue's already been removed or they're very thin and they don't have any excess tissue in their belly. But almost everybody has excess tissue in their thigh and their buttock. And the go-to for us is uh, tissue that comes right below the buttock. So it's sort of in the fold between the buttock and the thigh. And the reason that we use that as opposed to uh, what's been described in the past, which maybe people have heard of the S-gap or the I-gap, which is tissue from the buttock itself, is that it doesn't deform the butt as much. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't create as big of a divot in the butt. And uh, the scar is much more uh, well hidden because it's in a natural skin fold. Another good option for women that don't have tissue there is tissue on the inner thigh. Um, And uh, again, almost everybody has some excess tissue there.
1: And so as you're going through and talking to patients and they're trying to figure out, do I do the tissue expander? Do I do the deep flap? Do I take tissue from another part of my body? What's kind of the calculus that drives that decision?
2: So if I have a patient that's a good candidate for any of the options, the way I put it to them uh, in an effort not to make decisions for them is that they need to think what their priority is. If their priority is to have the simplest reconstruction possible without any additional significant downtime, then an implant might be a good option. If their priority is to have the best looking and feeling natural reconstruction that they can expect to be durable, then they should consider using their own tissues.
1: And so, and then deciding if you've got a patient who says, okay, well, I'd love to use my own tissue and I've got a lot in almost any region that you could possibly want... How do you make that choice?
2: Well, it's just a matter of uh, what, uh, where you're tolerant of having incisions and scars. The Using your own tissue from the belly, a lot of the time that scar ends up in the bikini line. So it's really not visible to anybody, uh, including and up to intimacy and weight wearing a bikini. Uh, on your hips or thighs or buttock, it may be a little bit more revealed, particularly in bathing suits and things like that.
1: So let's talk a little bit about intimacy and body image and so on. I think the other thing that people may not always have front of mind is the numbness that they have after surgery. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah,
2: I think that's a very important issue. And uh, as a matter of fact, there was a New York Times story about this in the last year or two uh, by the New York Times health, uh, health writer. Uh, and it talks about how uh, the numbness that comes after mastectomy uh, can really be surprising to patients. So I talk to patients, about every single patient about this, so they're, they're not surprised. There's not much I can do about it, but it's important that they know. The reality is that the uh, majority of the nerves that give sensation to the nipple and to the breast skin run through the breast, and therefore, by definition, are removed during a mastectomy. So mastectomies tend to be numb, regardless of reconstruction. Putting an implant under there is not going to improve uh, the uh, sensation with using your own tissues there's some data to suggest that over the course of years there is some return of sensation in some patients and there are some techniques that we can do to improve the chances of that such as uh, hooking up nerves to the tissue that we uh, that we transfer Uh, but uh, that's a best case scenario and i i I tell the patients to expect numbness um, over an extended period of time after a mastectomy and to consider the possibility that erogenous ex- sensation um, may never come back. And that's an, important, that's an important thing. You know, if a woman is dependent on uh, nipple sensation for achieving orgasm and she has the option between a mastectomy and a partial m- uh, mastectomy, so, uh, something we refer to as a lumpectomy, then that's something that may come into play in her decision-making. And then the other thing is beyond sexuality is a personal safety. Uh, If the breast is numb, then you may not realize that you've hurt yourself. So I've seen patients that have gotten very bad sunburns, for example, because they didn't realize, or they got, uh, they put a hot pack on and got burnt because they didn't realize that it was too hot. So it does require an adjustment. And I talk to every single patient about it.
1: So it's interesting you talk about uh, the nipple as well. I think it's important, you know, when we think about mastectomies, uh, some patients are candidates for nipple-sparing mastectomies, but the nipple in those cases is also numb, and it does not function uh, like a normal nipple in terms of its response to sexual stimulus or cold or anything. But I think the other piece that women need to know about breast reconstruction is that for many patients, we take the nipple because all of the ducts of the breast go to the nipple and many cancers come from the ducts. And so there is oncologically some reason to take the nipple. What do you tell patients about nipple reconstruction as an option to complete their reconstruction after mastectomy?
2: Yeah, so just to echo what you said is uh, people look at a mastectomy and they say you leave the the skin behind, why can't you leave the nipple? And the reality is that the nipple is not skin, the nipple is breast. Uh, So I 100% agree with you there. In terms of nipple reconstruction, we have very good options for nipple reconstruction. Uh, Usually what we do is we take some of the tissue that's left behind either from the tissue we take from the belly or from the skin overlying the implant and we fold it up on itself and that creates a bump a sort of nipple. And then we come back and we do a tattoo for the areola. The areola is the colored part around the nipple. And that's really great because often it can disguise the majority of the scars on the breast. And very often it's a hard time even telling it's a reconstructed breast. Another option uh, that women can consider is a 3D tattoo. That's not something that we offer as physicians, but there are tattoo artists out there that are expert at this and do a fantastic job. Uh, That often requires... Uh, an out-of-pocket expense.
1: And so the other, the other aspect that I think is important to consider, and something that you mentioned, was for some patients, they can have what's called a partial mastectomy, removing just part of the breast. And many patients don't require reconstruction after that. But there is uh, some thought of partnering the oncologic procedure with the plastics procedure, particularly in patients who perhaps need a breast lift to kind of combine the two. Can you talk a little bit Bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very good option for women that require large resections, so a large partial mastectomy, a large lumpectomy, and are either, uh, the medical term is totic, which is a, a nice word for, a nice way of saying saggy, or have very large breasts. And then what we can do is we can design the incisions that are done for the lumpectomy as the same incisions that we would for a breast lift or a breast reduction. And what that does is, first of all, it's a twofer. And second of all, it uh, fills in the empty space that would normally be left by a lumpectomy. And uh, there's the belief that after radiation, which is generally required with a lumpectomy, the shape of the breast will be better than if that space was left empty and allowed to scar in. Now, there's other options as well, even for women that aren't very large-breasted and desire a partial mastectomy or a lumpectomy that would deform their breast. We can borrow tissue from uh, their uh, their back and rotate it in to fill in the space. We can inject fat. Uh, we can sometimes put in implants at the time of the lumpectomy. There's a ton of options, and they're all worth discussing.
0: Dr. Tomer Avram is an assistant professor of surgery at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.